Welcome to the London Lyceum, where we try to encourage listeners, especially our Baptist listeners, to think deeply and clearly. Think about their faith, think about their church, think about their life, and think about God. We're analytic, Baptist, and confessional. Thanks for tuning in, and enjoy the episode. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone once again to round two of the London Lyceum with our friend Jake Stone. We had a great time in our first installment with him learning about his journey from an independent fundamentalist Baptist church to being a confessional uh, 1689 Baptist, I guess I would say, or maybe a New Hampshire Baptist. I don't know. I guess <laughs> we'll he'll, he'll tell us about that here uh, today. So we're interested in learning more about the use of confessions particularly the New Hampshire and the 1689. But I think Brandon uh, was pretty interested uh, in something from him first. Yeah, Jake. So let's just jump right into this. So before we get into the New Hampshire and the 1689 and all that, um, you mentioned um, kind of at the end of the last episode that you have developed a love for history, um, specifically um, Baptist history. So who is your favorite Baptist theologian? And just Give us a, a thumbnail sketch of who that person is and why they're your uh, favorite Baptist theologian. Well, I guess I can't give you two names because that wouldn't <laughs> be answering your question. So I'm going to preface it by giving a quote about who I'll say is my favorite Baptist theologian. That would be Andrew Fuller. And I'd say that because C.H. Spurgeon, who would also rank up there too, uh, wrote to Fuller's son and said that he believed his father was the greatest theologian of the 19th century. Hmm. And so if Spurgeon says that about a man, um, then there must be something pretty, pretty special about him. Andrew Fuller um, really is the theologian behind what we call the modern missions movement that begins with William Carey. Uh, he uh, served as the longest pastor that he had was in Kettering, uh, England, and he was known as the elephant of Kettering. And Fuller is always, what I love about him is that he was a pastoral theologian who was not afraid to tackle controversies, but he did not do so in a way that was filled with, with glee and that he was just ready to stir the pot, but that he really believed that important issues needed to be addressed. And of course, for him, the particular Baptist, by the time that Fuller was converted and they began pastoring in the late 1700s, had really fallen into uh, the term was used by one, a dunghill almost in many ways, because of hyper Calvinism. And really, the denomination had experienced a, a slow decline. Now, I do agree with Michael Haken's analysis that hyper Calvinism is not the only reason. There was a decline among the particular Baptists. There were other factors, but it was a major one. And Fuller comes, and he's really influenced by Edwards, and then as he's reading Bunyan, uh, also uh, John Owen. And then there was a man in their own circles, Robert Hall, who published a book that was really uh, stressing Edwardsian uh, Calvinism and really influenced Fuller to move away from the hyper-Calvinism that he had grown up in and actually held to early to more of the evangelical Calvinism that would bring revival to the particular Baptists, including uh, the sending of William Carey. So now Fuller is not, I don't agree with Fuller on everything. I think his writings on the atonement at times are very muddy. Um, you read him his first edition of the Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation in 1785, and then the second edition in 1801. 
believe is correct year. You know, there's a difference in how he speaks about the atonement. And that caused a lot of controversy within particular Baptist circles, specifically from Abraham Booth, that Fuller was becoming an Arminian. I don't believe that was correct. I don't believe Fuller was an Arminian. He rejected Arminianism. He also rejected being called a Baxterian. Uh, he did not like Richard Baxter at all. Uh, but, but I do believe if you want to understand what it means to be a, a, a pastor theologian, especially as a Baptist in a Baptist setting, I think you will find nobody better than Andrew Fuller specifically because of the emphasis he places on the cross, on Christ, and the work of Jesus. And I would add, if you read Fuller and see how much he is Christocentric, you will see why Spurgeon lauded him the way that he did. He definitely had an influence on Spurgeon, I would contend, because of Spurgeon's own emphasis on the cross. So I would say Andrew Fuller, but it's a hard, that's a hard answer to give. Yeah, man, that's good. So we, we've actually asked that question twice now. The first time we asked um, Steve Weaver, and he gave the same answer. Didn't he say Fuller? I think he said Fuller. And, yeah. you know, I know obviously Southern Seminary has the Andrew Fuller Center. Mm -hmm. um, so clearly he's an important figure that more should be introduced to. I remember when I first went to Southern Seminary, I stayed – or I, I was living on campus, and I was walking down the hall of my dorm, I guess – thing whatever it is and on the bulletin board there was a thing for the Andrew Fuller Center and I remember thinking who is Andrew Fuller <laughs> I had no idea who he was or why he was important uh, so obviously I'm sure that there are other people like me who have never heard of Andrew Fuller uh, to their own detriment so we encourage you if you've never heard of him or if you have to dig into him uh, as clearly he is an important figure that has a lot to say to us to encourage us to challenge us and to help us see the glory of Christ more deeply. Can I give two book recommendations real quick? Of course. On, on Andrew Fuller. We love if, book if recommendations. People, yeah, if people want to kind of get a little bit of, a, of, of an introduction to him, a great book that I would recommend is entitled The Armies of the Lamb, The Spirituality of Andrew Fuller. It is edited and introduced by Michael Haken. It contains a lot of uh, letters and, and notes that Fuller wrote to different people in different situations. It really gives you a good uh, insight into who he was and, and spirituality. Again, this is, you know, people sometimes think that Calvinism is, is dry and cold and dusty. I challenge you to read a Calvinist like Fuller and, and walk away still saying that. So it's a great, great way to read him in his own words. The second quick introduction to Fuller and also in general, the revival that took place among the particular Baptists is another Michael Haken work called Ardent Love for Jesus, Learning from the 18th Century Baptist Revival. And he walks through uh, not just Fuller, but, but some of the other men and just kind of their theological uh, beliefs and, and what impacted them and how God used them. And I love this from Michael Haken because he draws this much from these men, but the story of Fuller and Carey and others is about the importance of gospel friendships. And uh, Michael Haken rightly notes that we hear names like Luther and Calvin, and we think uh, one man, one giant who, who changed everything. But both of those men, yes, they were giants, but they had a lot of friends and brothers behind the scenes who walked with them and encouraged them. They were not alone. They were not isolated. And Haken contends that revival and reformation never happens by one person, but by a band of men and women. And that's very evident in the life of the particular Baptist. And I think 
the title of the book itself, Ardent Love for Jesus, we should desperately seek for that to be the testimony we would hold as, as Christians in general, but especially as those who would claim to be heirs of men like Fuller and Spurgeon and others. Man, that's good. So and before we jump off of uh, the topic of Andrew Fuller and get into the confessions, uh, also, this is not an introduction, but um, Banner of Truth has the entire works of, of Andrew Fuller, 1,000-page book. Jake talked me into purchasing that <laughs> last fall. I've read a grand total of zero pages out of it, but it's on my shelf, and it looks nice. I'm crushing so. it. Um, but, yeah, so I'll, I'll get to that once. Thank you so much for the encouragement. I yeah, I know, right? <laughs> well, look, I, I got to finish seminary first and then I can read all this stuff I want to, but all right. So Fuller lived uh, in the 1700s, just to put that in context with the confessions mm-hmm. we're about to talk about. So 1689 London Baptist confession was originally penned in 1677. And then the New Hampshire confession, Jake, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this was 1833. Is that right? The, the, the first edition. Okay. Um, the, the main edition that most everybody uses and the edition that we use at New Testament was uh, in 1853. Okay. All right. Well, that's a perfect segue. So t- tell us about um, how your church uses the New Hampshire Confession as a statement of faith. And what do you, I don't know if your church has any formal um, relationship to the 1689 or if you just use that um, yourself as, as the pastor, but um, just tell us, you know, exactly how you, got to the place to where your church adopted the New Hampshire Confession and then also how you use the 1689. Sure. So we use the New Hampshire Confession of Faith as our as our statement of faith for membership at New Testament. And that really was uh, driven home by going to a nine March weekender at Capitol Hill Baptist Church with Mark Dever. That's what they use. And we were kind of working in that time about a constitution and redoing a church covenant and and adopting a a statement of faith for membership. And so I had already uh, taught through the 1689 at New Testament, although uh, I taught it when I was still holding to uh, dispensationalism. So I didn't do a very good job in in some places there. We won't go into that. But um, but I kind of knew the 1689 and loved the 1689 even then, but but didn't believe that I. It would be the best for us as a church to use it as a a membership tool as far as you must subscribe to this in order to be a member. But I felt like the New Hampshire confession, understanding kind of the historical backdrop of the confession works well for membership. And then the 1689 is what one must subscribe to, to be an elder or a pastor at New Testament Baptist. And I explained that in all of our membership classes, when we have you know, people wanting to join the church, uh, we walk through the New Hampshire Confession, and if they don't have a copy of the 1689, I will give them that and say, this is more expansive, uh, and this is what you're going to see reflects what we're going to teach here from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. But the New Hampshire Confession is what you must agree to in order to be a member. Uh, and in many ways, most 1689 churches that I know of, uh, no, none of them make full subscription to the 1689 a membership requirement they have created some type of an abstract of the 1689 and they use that for membership i would say the new hampshire confession is an abstract in many in, in many ways from the 1689 and so it works well i'm not trying to reinvent um the wheel so to speak the only thing that we changed is we did add a article an article on family uh, at the end that marriage is between one man and one woman and 
relationship between children and parents. And that's all summarized from the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 article on the family. So we added that uh, in our statement of faith, but everything else is based off the New Hampshire Confession. Okay. So that, I mean, that, I think that's pretty helpful because I, I was, obviously I'm always interested in why different churches choose different statements of faith to use. And it seems like New Hampshire, instead of something like the 1689, is much more digestible for the normal church member uh, to be able to understand and willfully subscribe to. Would you say that that's primarily the reason to use something like that versus the bigger 1689? Sure, absolutely. Because like I said, I mean, I, I can teach through the New Hampshire Confession in a membership class. I can walk through each of these articles and, and give a summary. And I've already given this to people who are interested to let them read over it so that if they have any questions or don't understand something, they can go ahead and be prepared to ask me. I, I, I cannot in one setting walk through the 1689 and teach that in what I would say in, in, a, in a fair and good way. Um, and I don't want to, for example, most people unless they're coming from a Reformed Baptist background, I'll just throw this out there. They have never heard Baptist covenant theology. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's a whole chapter in the 1689 on the covenant, on God's covenant. I don't think that it's fair of me to ask somebody to subscribe and say they believe that in order to be a member. I would not want to tell somebody who maybe holds to dispensationalism and tell them you, you can't be a member here. Now they're, they're going to understand that we're not going to be teaching dispensationalism in New Testament Baptist. And there's going to be an issue if they're walking around telling everybody, you know, the pastor's wrong about the covenants. You need to be a dispensational, but we're going to have issues there. So if, if that's your mentality is here to try to convert everybody to your opinion on that, this is probably not where you need to be, but I would never make that you've got to be uh, fully in agreement with me on everything on covenant theology in order to be a member of the church. I think that's really wise, and I, I, I'm always amazed that some churches want to make um, people have to subscribe to massive statements just to be a member. Uh, I've always thought a, some sort of two-tiered statement makes way more sense of people's consciences uh, to make it much more minimal for someone simply to be a member versus someone who's actually in a teaching role. It makes sense that you know, you'd have to subscribe to something much more detailed for that than simply uh, committing to be a member of the church. Uh, I wouldn't want to reject someone who maybe they're not there yet on certain doctrines, but as long as they're okay with, you know, the overall teaching direction, uh, then I want to welcome them as a brother in Christ to my church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and, the, and the New Hampshire Confession became very popular with churches actually in the South because it began to be used in many of the church manuals that were produced by men like J.M. Pendleton, for example, that were very influential Baptist churches in the South in the late 19th century. So there is a historical you know, connection with, the, with this uh, confession of faith. Um, and I also, and I love and I'm thankful for Southern Seminary, and, and I think overall the abstract of principles is a good document, but I think the New Hampshire is weightier in the abstract, specifically on justification. In the New Hampshire Confession, the term imputation is used in Justification's article. And that term is not used in the abstract principles. It was deliberately not put in there because there was a controversy in the SBC in the early days um, about using that term or not. 
And also the abstract does not have an article uh, on the harmony of the law and the gospel like the New Hampshire does, which which is a very, uh, very needed understanding right now. A lot of the controversy and evangelicalism over social justice and, and all of that, I think, is because is due in part to a, a failure to understand biblically the law and the gospel, why they're distinct and how they work together. And I think the New Hampshire Confession is a very good statement on that. Uh, that's that's needed, and I can teach through and walk through that um, in a way that I think is is fair and is being open with somebody who is is interested in joining. In a way that you know, I'm not making them affirm now that the, the threefold division they may not be there on that yet. Um, that's how it's going to be taught from the 1689 perspective. But it, for membership, I, I wouldn't say that you have to agree with that uh, in order to join. So let's let's talk a little bit about the relationship between the New Hampshire confession and, you know, the Baptist faith and message. So um, the New Hampshire confession is, I guess, the, uh, the structure that um, the Baptist faith and message was originally, um, I guess, drawn out of. So, but there are things I know from past conversations that we've had um, specific doctrines that are, are present in the New Hampshire confession that are not present in the Baptist faith and message. And this kind of gets into, so I guess this is maybe a two part question. So the Baptist faith and message is, is generally branded as a, a big tent um, statement of faith. Mm-hmm. And the New Hampshire confession seems to be more Calvinistic, but I know that there's some disagreement among scholars about just how Calvinistic it is. I mean, some say that it's um, just as Calvinistic as maybe the 1689 um, but others would say it's not, or maybe it's just the way it's delivered to us. But so tell us a little bit about that. But also, um, I know that you've told me that that imputation, um, which you just mentioned here, is present in the New Hampshire Confession and the Law and Gospel um, section is there. But I know both of those are not in the Baptist Faith and Message. So just tell us a little bit about maybe the historical um, debate between Calvinists and non-Calvinists in the SBC and how maybe that relates to why some of these things were taken out of the New Hampshire when it was, a, um, when it was used by the framers of the, um, of the Baptist faith and message. Sure. Philip Schaff, who, who did a great work on, you know, creeds, confessions of, of Christendom makes this statement about the New Hampshire confession. He said, it is a clear and concise statement of faith in harmony with the doctrines of older confessions in Baptist life, but expressed in milder form. Uh, I know many dear 1689 brothers who, who, who think that the New Hampshire confession is, is too watered down. Um, it's, 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 it's not robust in its Calvinism. And then there are those who say that the New Hampshire confession is uh, not Calvinistic at all. In fact, one Baptist historian said that it didn't touch on the dividing points between Arminianism and Calvinism. And I would say with all due respect as somebody who not only uses it, but has uh, only have two articles left. I've preached through every article of the New Hampshire since January on Sunday nights. Uh, I don't know what they're reading. Um, I don't know how anybody can read this and say that it doesn't talk about um, issues of Arminianism and Calvinism. I mean, you know, uh, for example, when you when you're looking through the if if you go and read the statement on grace and regeneration, 
And then it says it's proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. Mm-hmm. And then article eight is of repentance and faith. It reads, we believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating spirit of God. By the way, that language is still used in the Baptist faith and message, which mm-hmm. has still, even to the 2000 edition, carries that very Calvinistic. Well, that's, that's what I was just about to say, not, not to interrupt, but if you keep, keep reading where you just left off, you know, it says, let's, let me just read that whole article. So um, yeah. article eight, we believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating spirit of God, whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger and helplessness and of the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition confession and supplication for mercy at the same time, heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest and King and relying on him alone as, uh, as the only and all sufficient savior. So that section where it, it, I mean, it seems to clearly put regeneration prior to, um, our turning to God in confession. And that seems pretty similar to how the Baptist faith and message 2000 reads. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, Absolutely. It, 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 it carries forth that, that language, and that's what I'm saying. I, Mark, Mark Dever wrote an article about using the New Hampshire Confession, and he said no consistent Arminian could sign the New Hampshire Confession. Mm. You can't. Yeah, I mean, so I what, agree. It says we believe repentance and faith. Uh, while they're yeah. duties, they are wrought in our souls by the regenerating spirit of God. I don't know how you can read that as saying I somehow mustered up my own faith and repentance on my own. Uh, clearly this is from outside of me. It's from the spirit of God. Yeah. And, and article six of the freeness of salvation, it talks about nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth, but his own inherent depravity and voluntary rejection of the gospel. So what the New Hampshire confession, just really quick, when it was written, uh, what was threatening the New Hampshire Baptist of the day you had the rise of Fenianism was beginning to infiltrate up there. So you're talking about not even so much Arminianism, but really Pelagianism in many ways and his whole revivalistic manipulative methods. Uh, you had the, the first group of free will Baptists, which were Arminian Baptists who arose uh, in New Hampshire and New England. And then you had what at that time were known as the Anti-Missionary Society, Baptist, which began became eventually the primitive Baptist, the hard shell, the hyper-Calvinist. So you had all of those forces uh, challenging the churches of New Hampshire in the Baptist convention there, and they believed it was time that they needed to write a, a confession that was going to be concise and tackle these different challenges. So when you read through the confession specifically, all of these articles dealing with soteriology. Uh, you're seeing them address Arminianism. Uh, the article on the freeness of salvation not only addresses that, but also the hyper-Calvinism. And they were writing from, to speak about somebody we mentioned earlier, they were writing from a Fullerite perspective. Uh, Andrew Fuller and his influence by that time, especially in the 1830s in America, uh, was very prevalent. And so when they write that article about getting the gospel out to everybody preaching, that's definitely connected to uh, Fullerism. 
So they put themselves in squarely in the tradition of historic particular Baptists, and specifically here, Andrew Fuller. I, I made the argument when I taught Article 4, The Way of Salvation, we know for sure that the New Hampshire Baptists were not writing from a dispensational hermeneutic because that wasn't even here in the United States by that time. So they're writing from a covenantal standpoint. So when you read the statement through the mediatorial offices of the Son of God, who by the appointment of the Father freely took upon him our nature yet without sin, honored the divine law uh, by his personal obedience. And then you get to number five of justification, which talks about his perfect righteousness is freely uh, imputed to us. So these men are writing from a very historic, particular Baptist framework to write a confession, though, that's addressing some of the hyper-Calvinism and Arminianism of the day, but coming at it also in a way that could teach the people. And you keep reading through the New Hampshire Confession. They have the article on the harmony of the law and the gospel. That is very historically reformed. Read their article on the Christian Sabbath. And that's very historically reformed as well. Now, usually our 1689 brethren, their objection to the New Hampshire Confession is the article on the church and on baptism and Lord's Supper. Um, the article on the church does not mention the universal church. It only talks about a visible church. So that's an example of where holding the 1689 for elders supplements what I do think should have been stated in the New Hampshire Confession on that. And then on the Lord's Supper, there's not a clear statement on what we would call the, the spiritual presence that many particular Baptists have held to. Um, but other than that, uh, the confession is definitely in line, as Philip Schaff said, with the Reformed Baptist or particular Baptist heritage. And then when you get to the BFM in 1925, the reason the New Hampshire was used was because there was an attempt to have the SBC adopt the New Hampshire Confession, the Northern Baptist Convention adopted as well, so that both conventions would hold the same confession and kind of somewhat was an attempt, mainly by E.Y. Mullins, president of Southern Seminary at the time, to kind of bridge some of the, and heal some of the gap that still remained from, from the division preceding the Civil War. Uh, but the Northern Baptist Convention did not adopt the New Hampshire uh, under a resolution that said, we only use the Bible which became the uh, door opening wide for liberalism to come into the Northern Baptist Convention, which led to a mass exodus of conservative churches over the next 30 years. Uh, so the SBC uh, used the BFM, excuse me, used the New Hampshire Confession as the foundation for the BFM 1925. Uh, interestingly, there was only two articles from the New Hampshire they did not use in any way. And one of those was on the, the harmony of the law and the gospel. That is totally not present in the 1925 BFM. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the other article that was totally not used at all was Article 16 of civil government. That is not used at all in the 1925 BFM. But everything else has parts originally from the New Hampshire Confession. That's good stuff, man. Thank you for all of that. I mean, this is... This is a lot to chew on. This is really good stuff. Before we uh, wrap things up and let you go, we want to do more book recommendations because those are always good. So it could be something you read now, something that's been, and it doesn't have to be specific to even Baptist history or Baptist theology. So just give the, the listeners a couple of uh, book recommendations uh, before we 
uh, wrap things up? Sure. If you want a good one volume kind of history theologically of Baptists, you, you cannot go wrong with Tom Nettles by his grace and for his glory. Yeah, I love that a Very book. good work that traces the history of the Baptists from a theological standpoint and really shows, I would say, the strong Calvinistic foundation, but also how the Calvinism and the Reformed theology was lost uh, by many Baptists, what led to that. So I highly recommend uh, that book to you. If you want to get a good... I would say primary resource to get a good understanding of where Southern Baptists were at the beginning and how they saw themselves in that particular Baptist tradition. I highly recommend uh, John Dagg's Manual of Theology and then his treatise on church order. It really is a great work of theology and ecclesiology from John Dagg. I would also state though, that even though he wrote that in the 1850s, that I do think it represents that he really was kind of the last, almost in, in many ways, of being a Baptist who held to that historical, particular Baptist theology and framed it in a pastoral way. A lot of the theologies that will come later are very much departing from where Dag was. So it's kind of interesting when you, even though that's early and Calvinism was still dominant for another 50 years or to 75 years after Dag, but I do think that he kind of represents that there was a, a shift that was coming in Baptist life. Oh, man, that's great stuff. Uh, we are th super thankful to have been able to learn more about the New Hampshire. Um, I, I think I myself want to go read the whole thing again, uh, and I encourage all of our listeners to do the same. And thinking through just confessions in general and how they can be useful in our churches, how they differ from each other um, and how they benefit us uh, spiritually as well. Uh, so we, I know me and Brandon love confessions. Uh, we highly commend them to you. And I think uh, Jake, you have stirred me at least to, to love more Baptists. Uh, I, I often forget how many good Baptists we have in our history and how much they can offer us. So I thank you for that. Uh, I thank you for joining us today uh, and giving us all this information. Uh, we've been very blessed by it, and we uh, encourage others to check you out on Twitter. Is that the easiest place to find you if someone wants to connect with you? Sure, absolutely. The hashtag is at NTBCPastor. Well, there you have it, at NTBC Pastor. You can check him out on Twitter. And as always, if any of our listeners have questions for us that they would like us to address on the podcast, uh, just check us out at the London Lyceum, pod, or the London Lyceum uh, on Twitter, or you can uh, just connect with either me or Brandon on Twitter as well. Um, my, my tagline, I think, is JL Stefaniak, and Brandon's is something with a bunch of numbers. It's I don't know. B-T-A-Y-S-C-U-E-0812. Who knows what 0812 means? My birthday. Okay. Well, there you have it. His birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Which is coming up soon. That is coming up At soon. Our, our listeners should send him gifts. You should. <laughs> books. I'm sure his wife would love it. Oh have more goodness. books. Yep. Anyway, we're thankful for you having being here today, Jake. Uh, we really enjoyed it. We learned a lot. And I know our listeners did too. And uh, we hope our listeners are excited to tune in to us in the coming episodes in the future. All right, we'll talk to you all later and uh, have a great weekend.
I said weekend. Have a great rest of your week. We drop these on Wednesdays. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.